Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Censorship. Urdu Literature, Islam, and Progressive Secular Nationalisms in Colonial India and Pakistan have a complex and intertwined history. Sara Wahid offers a timely examination of the role of progressive Muslim intellectuals in the Pakistan movement in her new book, Hidden Histories of Pakistan, Censorship, Literature, and Secular Nationalism in Late Colonial India, published with Cambridge University Press in 2022. She delves into how these left-leaning intellectuals drew from long-standing literary traditions of Islam in a period of great duress and upheaval, complicating our understanding of the relationship between religion and secularism. Rather than seeing religion and the secular as distinct and oppositional phenomena, this book demonstrates how these concepts themselves were historically produced in South Asia and were deeply interconnected in the cultural politics of the left. Through a detailed analysis of trials of blasphemy, obscenity, and sedition, and feminist writers, Wahid argues that Muslim intellectuals engage with socialism and communism through the distinctive ethical and cultural past. In so doing, she provides a fresh perspective on the creation of Pakistan and South Asian modernity. In our conversation, we discuss leftist Muslim ideals, Urdu literary networks, deconstructing the religious secular binary, the banning of the controversial Burning Embers collection, the renowned writer Sadat Hassan Manto, the politics of sexuality, South Asia's colonial legacies, poet Fez Ahmed Fez, Islamic traditions of aesthetics and ethics, legal trials on obscenity and blasphemy, feminist poet Famida Riaz, the gender politics of progressive intellectual spaces, and notions of South Asian Muslim nationalism and communal identity. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. Now, here's my conversation with Sara Wahid about hidden histories of Pakistan, censorship, literature, and secular nationalism in late colonial India, published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. 
Welcome, Sara. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you? Good, good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about this book, Hidden Histories. Um, Before we get into the book, though, we always start with a little bit about our authors. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background, your training, uh, perhaps uh, mentors or moments that were influential in shaping you into the scholar you are today? Sure, sure. So um, I am a historian of South Asia. And my focus is on Muslim societies and communities in South Asia, and uh, largely on the modern period. But of course, I also, uh, in my new work, moving towards early modern and pre-modern South Asian history. I received my PhD in South Asian history from Tufts University after doing a master's at University of Chicago. And I initially, uh, you know, wasn't uh, someone who... I've, although I've always had a passion for history, in college, I was drawn more to anthropology, and my MA was in the social sciences. So it was uh, a very curious route that I took to uh, history. I took some time between my master's and my PhD, where I worked in immigrant communities in Chicago, like working class immigrant communities in Chicago, where I did some collective organizing, community organizing and also worked in journalism for a short bit. And it was while I was doing freelance journalism when I began to think again much more seriously about history, about long pasts, the ways in which narratives that exist in the present moment oftentimes repeat or recycle a lot of assumptions that are uh, beholden you know, within the present moment. And so it was increasingly um, my move away from journalism and towards history that led me to doing a PhD uh, in history of South Asia. And I was also someone who was really excited and interested in looking at um, left and social justice movements in South Asia, particularly uh, within and amongst Muslims, and those who were also aligning themselves both as uh, Muslims and as um, leftists. And so that's really where this project uh, was uh, was born out of that, reading a lot of Urdu literature at the time as well. Yeah, it's interesting to hear that background because it, it kind of helps, uh, helps me think about the kind of, you know, you read your sources and look at very creative sources. Um, and it, it makes a lot of sense coming from this kind of very dynamic background that you have. Um, can you talk a little bit about specifically how this uh, project started to emerge as a as a book project? Sure. Uh, so I wrote my dissertation on the cultural politics of the left in late colonial India and post-colonial Pakistan. And this project, the book itself, uh, grew out of the dissertation, which I completed in 2011. I took some time to really put together the book manuscript because there were several different um, aspects to this project and this work that I wanted to think about, particularly since I was drawing from so many different disciplinary strands. So it was a challenge because it's such an interdisciplinary work and it's not a straightforward traditional history in the sense of when we think of chronology. So for instance, a lot of the works that have been done, um, the historical works that have 
looked at, um, say, the progressive writers. Actually, very few historians have looked at the progressive writers, but the way they narrate that history is that it typically ends in the, it starts somewhere in the 1930s and ends in the 1950s. And I really wanted to kind of think um, about a much longer um, history of that and how progressive thought and movements in South Asia amongst the left and amongst um, Muslim left in particular really stretched on uh, far past the 50s. Uh, there tends to be in South Asian history uh, considerably less attention paid to uh, what's happening in uh, Pakistan after 1947. So a lot of the modern histories of South Asia cover a great deal of colonial history, but there's um, relatively less on post-colonial history and on Pakistan in particular. Now, um, this project centers on these uh, leftists uh, or a, a group in a kind of genre of leftist Muslim uh, intellectual Urdu writing. Um, can you kind of just give us a, a sense of who were the authors and the networks of this context and what were some of their shared ideals and, and strategies? Sure, of course. So um, many of the writers that I'm speaking about in the book, and the book is set, of course, against a broader context of a crisis, uh, really around the rise of censorship in late colonial India. So many of these writers are also getting censored and pushing back against those regimes of censorship. Um, and they really belong to, they're at the edges of political parties at a time when the, say, communist party and socialist parties in India are trying to, you know, gain hegemony over the nationalist movement during the 1930s. Um, and there's also, but they don't, they're not completely all, you know, communists either, right? So they belong at the edges of these political parties. They're also part of a vernacular, you know, literary movement, the Urdu literary movement at this time, that's also drawing its influence from more global social realist literary writing. And that's, uh, it's going on um, all over the world. They're drawing influences from you know, meetings with writers in France, in England. Um, they're also, uh, you know, I'm speaking of people like Sajjad Zahir, who is one of the founders of the Progressive Writers Association in the Urdu language in um, the 1930s. Um, there are uh, uh, men like him who get his, his, his work banned. He's a communist. Um, there are others like Rashid Jahan Begum, his contemporary, a woman who is also a communist and also coming from a Muslim background. And then there are writers who end up, I mean, Sajjad Sahir goes to Pakistan at some point. He gets imprisoned, comes back. Uh, this is where he writes his, his history of this uh, Urdu progressive writers movement in prison in Pakistan. There are others like Fez Ahmed Fez, who is a uh, leftist poet from Pakistan. And he's someone who is marked for sedition in the early Pakistani, um, the nascent Pakistani state uh, during the 1950s. Uh, there are figures like Sadat Hassan Manto, who uh, writes quite a lot of prolific, short story writer. 
and he comes of age around the same time, also belongs to this network of progressive writers, but also distances himself at various points. He's very, uh, you know, critical of those who would try to make the progressive writers movement into just a mouthpiece for a communist, um, you know, political organization. And he writes a lot about what happens during the partition of India and the creation of Pakistan, um, really drawing attention to the violence, specifically violence against women. Uh, there are poets like Fahmi Riaz in Pakistan, who comes of age really out of this tradition. And she's quite active during the 1970s under the um, onerous dictatorship of Ziaul Haq in Pakistan, um, during which time she is also exiled and ends up in India. And quite a very vocal and important poet for the feminist movement in Pakistan. So these are some of the figures I talk about in this book. Yeah. Um, an, another kind of key thread uh, that that runs through a lot of the issues and de the debates, um, and it seems like the, the the kind of secondary scholarship too, which which I'm not as familiar with, but uh, it, it, in relation to like attitudes towards the relationship between modernity and tradition, and how assumptions about uh, a clear separation between uh, religious and secular spheres uh, operate. So can, can you tell us a little bit about how this uh, binary, uh, religious secular binary fits into the story you're telling and how you and then your subjects uh, kind of conceptualize these categories? Sure, of course. So sometime in the 1990s, there is this very prolific and um, uh, prescient leftist Pakistani intellectual and activist, an academic by the name of Iqbal Ahmad, who at a talk delivered, I believe at UMass Amherst, uh, said that, quote, one of the failures of the left in the Muslim world was the failure to develop a language that would make sense to a people who are born in and have grown up in an Islamic civilization. You cannot turn your back on that, you see. Change takes root when it brings something new, but that newness is congruent. It is in harmony with, it harks back to, it invokes the memory of the old. It is in that congruence of the new and the old that lie the deep and real seeds of change. And so I wanted to sort of take this quote and, and, and use this to think about the ways in which left movements in late colonial India, because I'm the book is really about um, an exploration of that, but a, a deeper dive, because con contemporary South Asia today, there are ever stronger boundaries being drawn between the categories of religion and the secular, which are naturalizing and essentializing these categories, um, which is ultimately ahistorical, because we know that the modern world reinvented religion as a category. And in India, colonialism was really the means by which it was articulated. And it came to influence a lot of the modern nationalisms of um, South Asia. But these, I believe, are historically produced. And so as I looked at specific episodes of censorship faced by Urdu progressive intellectuals, where these dichotomies were either heightened or blurred or non-existent, I'm really writing a history of the relationship between literature and intellectual identity from a perspective that takes seriously the role of a kind of ethical self-fashioning in relation to Islamic thought 
and Muslim belonging, um, while also along the axis of leftist articulation. And so these writers and intellectuals who face censorship, I mean, in order to really understand their work and what they're producing and the ideas they're grappling with is we have to really understand how they made sense of their past and its literature and how they interpreted tradition in relation to progress. So on the one hand, those interpretations would be really forward-looking, radical, revolutionary. And on the other, it could also be yearning for this pre-colonial Mughal um, past while using a language of longing that was very particular to the Urdu literary tradition. And it comes out of a Persianate, you know, it's very deeply embedded within a Persianate um, sort of uh, culture and, and, and political past. And so these norms, religious and cultural norms of comportment and various genres and modes of thought that had long been like enabled and were even premised upon critiques of power, right? So if you read poetry, for instance, by Fez Ahmed Fez, he's drawing from, you know, I mean, um, you know, he himself at one point leads prayers at his local mosque, right? Um, And he's drawing from a whole body of um, literature and he's evocative symbology coming out of Sufi uh, cosmology and ideas and tropes and which are very central to the Urdu um, poetic tradition. And so, you know, these writers and intellectuals, they may have come from these um, upper class and, um, you know, Muslim gentry from largely North India, but they were not all pristinely secular. I mean, some of them were self-avowed atheists like Sajjad Zahir, but they can't be classified simply as religious, quote unquote, either, um, even if they had gone on Hajj to Mecca several times. I mean, there's a figure named Hasrat Mohani, Molana Hasrat Mohani, uh, who saw communism and Islam as mutually compatible. So he's writing, you know, odes to the Hindu deity Krishna while also talking about Hajj. And so really the terms religious and secular, as I argue, are meaningless insofar as categorizing these Urdu progressive intellectuals without first situating them within these longstanding Indo-Muslim and Persianate literary traditions. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Um, the The other thing that's really great and I think very original about your book is this um, this idea of censorship as kind of a uh, an analytical framework. Um, can can you talk a little bit about that? How how did that kind of emerge for you as like a uh, a way to kind of think about kind of this episodic history that you provide through your your examples? Yes, an episodic history is a good way of putting it because each of the chapters really turns to an instance, a moment of censorship, either around the question of blasphemy or obscenity or sedition. And I took up censorship to be the um, both the mainframe and the backdrop. Um, it's not so much a conceptual category, but a description of what was at stake and what was happening in um, you know, uh, the, the mid 20th century in South Asia. And you know, uh, today we're experiencing in South Asia some of the most censorious 
um, periods of, of modern South Asian history to date, but it comes out of this moment in the colonial past when the British Empire and the British colonial state is panicking over the rising anti-colonial nationalist movements. Um, and these are large scale mobilizations by um, Indian peoples who are wanting the British to leave India. And so all kinds of material is being censored at this time. I mean, the 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 amount of material that's being censored is quite, um, quite, I mean, it's just, it's quite extensive. And everything from uh, material that's considered Bolshevik and um, revolutionary um, to material that's, uh, you know, purportedly intended to hurt religious sentiments. And so it's in this context, this mass era, this era of mass censorship on one hand, and the rise of social movements demanding liberation on the other, that these, um, you know, this progressive writers movement first emerges. And there is a sort of uh, 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 moment in the early 1930s. In, this is long before, of course, the Sajjad, uh, sorry, the the um, Salman Rushdie affair of the 1990s, which I think, I think in, in many respects, you know, that uh, instance of censorship, which became a global event, has overshadowed a lot of the ways in which South Asian intellectuals today think about the past um, censorship. And if you look at the Urdu literary tradition, you see in the 1930s um, a text, a collection of short stories written called Angare or Burning em uh, Embers. And there's an, a debate that ensues within and amongst um, Muslims in North India about this uh, book, which uh, some are wanting to have it banned, okay, um, and it eventually is banned. And there are, of course, the writers themselves who are defending the the, the this literature that they have uh, written up, right? And so the terrain of that debate, however, is not just in terms of what we think of today, um, sort of some, you know, loosely liberal versus religious values, but the terrain of that debate has a lot to do with what does it mean to be an ethical writer? And sort of adab, which both means ethics, uh, is also rooted in a long classical Islamic tradition, of course, adab, but also in the South Asian context also means literature. And so this has a very um, important, uh, this is a sort of an important moment that heralds the onset of the progressive writers movement in late colonial India. And so censorship is really the context out of which they, um, they organize and, and, and write and resist. Yeah, can you can you tell us a little bit about this Burning Embers collection? What exactly were they saying, writing about? Why was it so controversial? And then, uh, I guess, what does it tell us about kind of uh, the construction of a Muslim communal identity at this time? Right. So um, essentially, these four writers, you know, Sajjad Zahir, Ahmad Ali, Rashid Jahan, and Mahmoud Zafar who are coming out of a middle-class uh, Muslim background in North India, who are all English educated, um, but are writing in Urdu, okay? Um, 
put together this collection of short stories and they are very much critical of the Sharif or respectable milieu of the society from which they're from and are taking really as their kind of who they're attacking or who they're directing their critique against are these self-appointed custodians of moral authority who are the reformers of the age, you know, the Muslim reformers of North India who have kind of seen people like servants, peasants, women, all these as objects of reform and never as subjects in their own right. And so this, uh, these short stories are kind of, you know, for instance, there's a short story by uh, Sajjad Zahir called uh, Jannat ki Basharat, which is the good tidings of heaven and is essentially um, a description of a of a religious cleric from Lucknow who, having rejected his wife's advances in order to offer prayers, he falls asleep dreaming of these beautiful seductresses offered by God as a reward for piety. And then when he emerges from his uh, dream, it turns out he's awakened and his wife is laughing because he's fondling the Quran. So these kinds of things, of course, as you can imagine, uh, really, um, uh, really sort of rub the the, the these moral authority um, guardians in the in 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 a quite a strong way, but other stories which you wouldn't really expect to affect them also did. Um, there were short stories in there by Rashid Jahan who wrote about women and how they were um, having to produce children and again and again to the detriment of their bodies. Um, there's a short story about a, about such a woman here who's confined in the women, you know, in the Zanana. And the thing is, she's using the language of women's speech, a particular kind of Begamati Zuban, which is women's speech, to write the story. So you're hearing this critique come from the very classes of people who have always been seen as objects of reform for this standard bearers of the um, North Indian Muslim community and never as subjects themselves to have a voice in which they are articulating their experiences and uh, what this hierarchy looks like from their perspective. So it's really attacking the respectable classes of Muslims you know, during this time. And because the progressive writers were both against the British colonial state, right? They were anti-colonial and also because they were critiquing the powerful patriarchs and moral authority and reformers of their communities, they found themselves wedged, right? Um, in this in this way that 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 essentially they were not willing to, I mean, they were seen as um, too uh, radical um, in in this way, right? They were doing both of these things. Um, you move on to look at uh, the the legal trials of the author Sadat Hassan Manto, who you mentioned earlier. Um, can you tell us a little uh, a little bit more about who he was? He's really um, kind of one of these towering figures. Um, some of the things he was writing about, and then the the types of charges that were brought against him. Yes, of course. So Sadat Hassan Manto has acquired quite an iconic status within South Asian um, literary culture, as well as more broadly. 
And more recently, there have been two films made about him and his life, uh, one in Pakistan and one in India. And there is a real yearning, I would say, amongst the left and liberal um, South Asian political spectrum to revive Manto's message, which, um, you know, he himself was quite an extraordinary figure who, of course, also liked to be seen as extraordinary. You know, he he wrote a lot about how he uh, was very distinctive and different from the other uh, progressives. And at one point said that he wasn't a progressive writer in that sense at all. Um, he actually is known for his short stories, right? He, he takes the approach where he many of the, 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 the figures in his short stories are oftentimes prostitutes. And there's a lot of very bold and frank writing about sexual violence, particularly around the partition. And these stories are banned not only in late colonial India, so he comes under uh, trial for obscenity charges in the early 1940s. Uh, there's there's a, six stories um, he's he's uh, are, are banned. You know his his literature is banned six times, thrice in late colonial India, and um, and in also uh, early post colonial Pakistan. In fact, I think he is the first writer to be banned for obscenity in Pakistan. And so uh, some of these short stories, which again take uh, you know for instance the short story Koldo. Uh, which is which means open it, which is about a woman who is sexually assaulted during the partition violence of India and Pakistan. This violence is unprecedented in South Asian history between religious communities, members of different religious communities, and is the largest mass displacement in modern human history. And he is really looking at the way in which you know, he's talking about sexual violence and this uh, woman who is uh, raped, not just by, you know, the members of her own community, uh, of the other community, but of course, the members of her own community, right? So he's very critical. Um, he's, he's, he's in many sense of sort of universalist, he sort of, uh, you know, he wants to look at the universal human experience. He says, don't look at how many Muslims died or how many Hindus died during partition. We need to look at how many humans died and so on and so forth. Um, at the same time, even Manto, who some have described as proto-feminist, was also writing short stories such as Boo, the Odor, which gets him in trouble in late colonial India, that itself is fraught with uh, stereotypes about tribal communities in India, that he himself is embedded within middle-class assumptions about tribal communities, you know, so this tribal woman has an affair with the upper-class man, upper-caste man, you know, there's a sense that, um, you know, these, these uh, parties are not necessarily as equal as, uh, you know, he kind of makes it out to be in the, in the short story. And so there's, there's quite a lot here um, that I looked at that others have ignored about Munto, I think, um, because so much attention has been paid to his partition stories. I was really interested in kind of looking also at the, his stories set in Bombay, which is where he spent a good deal of his time. Um, and he was really somebody who loved the city, you know, after partition. I mean, he really wanted to stay in, in Bombay, but he, he, he left India for Pakistan.
Um, so I'm looking at the broader oeuvre of Manto beyond just his uh, partition stories for which he's very well known and thinking about the ways in which, for instance, um, one of his short stories is first um, in late colonial India taken up for sedition uh, and not obscenity before it's turned over to obscenity. But even a writer like Manto who uses this language that's so, you know, um, again, very much, it's a very gritty, gritty language, a language that in which the lower class, lower caste characters of his short stories really come through. Even someone like Munto, uh, who is very much what you would say is very anti-tradition, quote unquote, when he argues in his court cases and he writes about these trials, you know, he's very much drawn to the classical poet like Ghalib. He is quoting you know, the, the, I mean, he's very, still very embedded within this literary tradition. Um, he's, he's, he's drawing from language that is also, you know, um, linked, uh, linked to, you could say, the, uh, this broader kind of um, uh, sensibility of the, um, of a Muslim self, that is struggling against the orthodox order of things, you know. So he's he's drawing from this longer history of that kind of uh, uh, resistance, you could say, or questioning um, a sort of ethical self-fashioning. And it's happening within this broader context of censorship. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off um you you mentioned fez ahmed fez uh, the very famous uh poet of the 1950s um earlier in the conversation and uh, one of your chapters focuses on him and uh kind of the uh you know the the, the controversies around uh his writing uh, mm -hmm. can, can you tell us a little bit more about what what his writings were all about how do they look backward to previous uh ethical or literary traditions and how do they imagine um modern political possibilities right so faz Ahmed faz was a communist poet he faced sedition charges and was imprisoned as part of this Rawalpindi conspiracy case in the 1950s one of the many instances of imprisonment and then later lived in exile he himself is someone who was first educated in, you know, he knows Arabic and Persian, um, Urdu, of course. And, um, you know, his own father actually lived in Afghanistan for some time. And um, basically, I'm looking at the 
various collections of his poetry. So, um, you know, he there's there's a, a set of uh, poems he publishes in the 1950s in Sahival and Hyderabad jails in Pakistan, Daste uh, Sabah, which means the palm of the wind. And essentially what this really is, at least from my perspective, is, is an ethical treatise. And it's rooted in these pre-modern Islamic concepts, which were composed as a response to the poet's political present. And so he's writing this at a time, and he's in prison at a time, when there has been a declaration of martial law in the Punjab in 1953, following this violent agitation against the minority Ahmadiyya community, who are seen as non-Muslim by various factions of the Pakistani ulama. And so Faz is really producing and composing this prison poetry when the nascent Pakistani state was beginning to grapple with the question of, well, who is a Muslim? What kind of state are we, you know, what does Islam have to do with the Pakistan kind of business, you know? And it's a question that's thrown really into sharp relief as the state really begins to increasingly use repressive tactics against its own people. And Dastis Sabah is formulated as this critique against the Pakistani state's tyranny and censorship. And its reach and ambiguity really challenged, I think, the dogmatism of some strands of communist secularism, as well as Islamic orthodoxy and extremism. And so he's someone, you know, Fez is someone who's deeply embedded within the Indo-Persian and Islamic tradition of poetic knowledge. Sometimes this gets ignored because there's a tendency to say that Fez is a straightforward leftist poet, which he was. But like I said, he was not averse to attending community gatherings at places of religious devotion, accepting invitations to lead congregational prayers at a village, village masjid. Um, you know, one of the things I think is really interesting, and I draw from Shahab Ahmad's work, What is Islam? To think about this more broadly, there's phrases within the Urdu poetic tradition, again, linked to the broader Persianate world. And Shahab Ahmed himself, you know, uh, talks about how Fez plies with this phrase, Kajkulahi, crooked headedness in one of his poems, uh, thereby making this hermeneutical statement about what it means to be a Muslim. So in this sense, I'm not arguing that Fez is this quote unquote cultural Muslim, which is a category that's used in South Asia, that you are either quote unquote a religious Muslim or a cultural Muslim, uh, modern Muslim, and so on and so forth. Um, but really he's someone who belongs in spite of and because of his alterity its difference as Muslim and part of this broader cosmological imagination that has been around for much, much longer than something as new as the Pakistani state. And he's composing this line about having this crooked hat, you know, crooked hattedness at a point when the Pakistani state was itself calibrating or recalibrating its relationship to Islam. So, I mean, you know, this sort of uh, this couture, right? Uh, the crooked hattedness is referring to an earlier Indo-Muslim style of wearing a certain style of hat that you can uh, put at a tilt. And it was used as a trope to describe that someone can have be sort of crooked, but also belong at the same time, right? So, I mean, I think this is um, something that comes through. Um, I think if you read the poetry and this writing more carefully, I think this sense that we have now in South Asia where these lines are being drawn so 
strongly between religion and secularism need to be rethought. And even at the onset of these left political and progressive traditions and movements in South Asia, we still see, we still see, I mean, they're upending a lot. They're, 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 they're very much rebelling against a lot of the assumptions of the age, as well as the previous Urdu literary tradition. They're definitely uh, questioning it, upending it, selective in fragmented ways, very selectively drawing from it. At the same time, they're also deeply embedded in it and drawing from this wellspring of Indo-Persian, um, Persianate uh, culture, which I don't think can be separated from Islam. I mean, I don't think we can think of it just as sort of a very theological versus um, cultural sense. You know, I think these things are happening uh, or are deeply interconnected and are interconnected for these political actors themselves. Um, the, the other thing that was um, pretty interesting in this uh, context is not only kind of grappling with this uh, Islamic history, uh, but also kind of dealing with, um, you know, the 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 new political futures uh, for South Asian nation states and their kind of colonial legacy, um, and how they kind of deal with with those roots. Um, so, can you talk a little bit about how these cases uh, kind of are 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 stemming from this South Asian colonial context and kind of getting reimagined in in new ways. Absolutely. I mean, if we look even to Faz Ahmed Faz's case and the sedition charges against which he was brought, I mean, these are all conspiracy cases, right? The British um, in India had launched a series of these, um, you know, basically trying to uh, capture these revolutionaries or what they saw as a threat um, to the British state and concerned with leftist anti-imperialist political figures who are galvanizing Indian nationalist movements. So, you know, these conspiracy cases, they started as uh, early as 1909, aiming to disband the revolutionary organizations that emerged in British India. So there was the Lahore conspiracy case in 1915. There was the Nasik conspiracy case, 1909, Delhi conspiracy case. I mean, these go on and on. And they're all rooted in the legislative framework of the late colonial state. And a, 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 the concept of emergency, as one author has uh, discussed, right? And he talks about, uh, Nasser Hussein talks about the jurisprudence of emergency, colonialism, and the rule of law. And he says that this concept of emergency cannot be separated from the logic of a rule of law. And so when a crisis occurs, the post-colonial state declares emergency, much like its colonial predecessor, and through similar institutional mechanisms. And so um, these kinds of legislative frameworks, these laws, which were used as a measure claimed by the British to protect the most vulnerable people, Right, that is the paternalistic claim that they were saving Indians from themselves or South Asians from themselves, right? Are actually begin to be adopted by the post-colonial state. So I don't think, in that sense, colonialism ends as the, as we like to kind of think of it. Yes, there is a shift in sovereignty, and of course, there's a d independence, but there the logic of it continues well past its official end in uh, uh, in South Asia. So the kinds of cases we're seeing today all across India and Pakistan are rooted initially in the 
laws introduced by the British and the assumptions that go with those laws about people from this part of the world being more sensitive about their religious sentiments and so on and so forth. You know, they need to be contained and controlled. And then there's also departures in so much that there is, um, you know, this 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 uh, concept of emergency and um, there, there's a way in which there's this attempt to move from the colonial to the nation state, but it's really insufficient to escape. You know, even with that move, it's it's insufficient to escape the operational logics of these these those legal forms. So it's in a sense like there's a recolonization going on. Uh, there's a colonization of the very uh, vulnerable peoples of South Asia by the new nation states themselves. You see this in Pakistan with the introduction of blasphemy laws and um, uh, blasphemy during, especially with the uh, with the Ziaul Haq in the 1970s and 80s, which have been taken to a whole new level um, uh, more recently. And you see this in India today, which is again, um, you know, unlike Pakistan, which was supposed to, you know, uh, which had much more military dictatorships. Yet, as Aisha Jalal has said, and she said this a long time ago, you know, that you know, India has fared only marginally better than Pakistan when it comes to this, you know, swinging between democracy and authoritarianism. I mean, what you have in India today is a fascist state in which many uh, dissidents and others questioning the logics and the oppressions and the brutalization of the BJP are being thrown into jail and so on and so forth. And of course, the anti-minoritarian uh, characteristic of that state as well. Um, you you wrap the book up, um, kind of I guess extending this history beyond what others have done by looking at uh, feminist poets of the the seventies and eighties uh, in Pakistan. Um, how how do these writers fit into the history of of South Asian Muslim women authors more generally? And then how do how should we understand their work uh, within the uh, specific gender politics of these pr progressive intellectual spaces you've been talking about. Yeah, thank you. So, of course, you know, like I said, the way in which the uh, left movement, the progressive writers also movement has been narrated, typically um, it's seen to have ended in the 1950s. And it's also very much seen typically narrated in South Asia amongst leftists themselves as a masculinist and a largely uh, male-oriented enterprise, right? Um, what I do in my book is to question this and to think about the long afterlives and, in fact, the new lives of the progressivist tradition that were... Um, as a result of the feminist engagement and um, feminist revitalization, I would say, of the progressive writers' movement. So in this sense, I don't think that the progressive uh, literary movement simply comes to an end in the 1950s. Especially what you see in the 1970s is a revitalization of feminist uh, poetry, a sort of new turn. This is happening both in India and in Pakistan. And, you know, both of these countries were experiencing a new wave of feminist movements uh, during the 70s. Um, and during the 80s, there was a number of sort of women's organizations and NGOs emerging at this time. Um, you know, 
a lot of times when uh, er, earlier when South Asian intellectuals were 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 writing, you know, um, they were uh, they were sort of defining it leftism, communism, socialism, Marxism, and while the liberation of women was articulated within the progressivist literary discourse from the 30s onwards through the 50s, you know, that was still very much an, uh, through a male dominated, both in terms of its lens and its leadership. And it was reflected also in the aesthetics of progressive poetry. Um, so, you know, there's a feminist turn in Urdu poetry that is, um, you know, as early as the 19, um, like I said, the early 1970s. And what I look at is a writer, a poet in particular, Fahmi Dariaz, who's at the vanguard of this feminist political literary transformation, inaugurating new strands of progressive progressivism. She's very critical of these moral guardians and patriarchal interpreters of Islam who had assaulted the rights and dignity of Pakistani women. I mean, she's coming out of a moment and writing at a moment, as I said, when Ziaul Haq is in power. At the same time, she herself is not taking umbrage against Islam per se. Her uh, feminist uh, politics um, certainly were a challenge and were confronting the Islamicization of the state, patriarchy and military dictatorship in Pakistan. But she was also very much, um, you know, drawing from her close knowledge of, um, you know, Muslim figures, Muslim women figures in Islamic history. And of course, we cannot ignore that there's a much longer history of Muslim women's writing in Urdu. Um, the first compilation of Urdu poetry by a woman was the anthology of Mahlaka by Janda, um, who was a 18th, late 18th and early 19th century courtesan from Hyderabad. And so um, there's a long history here of women's writing. And so I think that that's a history that's invoked by these feminists. And at the same time, they are critical of the progressives themselves who are, you know, very romantically writing about women, again, as um, not uh, sort of seeing their own contradictions in this sort of relationship between the romance and revolution. And she even, um, you know, other poets uh, like Sara Shugufta, who very vocally speak about, uh, you know, uh, abuse, domestic abuse. She's married to a leftist poet, you know, how she's expected to play the role of a housewife serving these progressive men, you know. So there's a real critique here of the progressive male-dominated um, leftists, and they're expressing this within their writing, and they're also drawing from a longer um, history of women's writing. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's, a great, uh, it's a great outline of these kind of major trends that are happening and, and very striking stories, all the examples you bring in. Um, is there anything, I mean, there's tons to the book, so I just want to make sure, is there anything you want to... Um, let listeners know about the book to kind of give them a taste of what you're hoping they might take away from before we uh, wrap things up. Yeah, I mean, um, first of all, thank you for having me here on New Books of Islamic Studies. I think very often South Asia gets short shrift when we think about 
the field of Islamic studies and we think about Islam, and yet the largest numbers of Muslims in the world live in South Asia. And I really want to sort of engage and I want to have readers engage with that, um, the, the sort of um, role of uh, uh, of Muslims in South Asia and how they're also broadly connected to leftist and internationalist progressivist movements as they're also drawing from these you know, Indo-Muslim and, and Persianate and Islamic histories. Um, but I also want readers to kind of think about how historians are um, kind of moving past, you know, uh, their uh, uh, past sort of what are the traditional archives and what happens when historians engage with literature and literary texts. So um, rather than mine these texts for raw data that can speak to this broader context of their circulation. What I've tried to do here in this book is actually consider how literary traditions themselves may also constitute archives. So yes, of course, I've used materials from official state records, but I read them alongside literary analysis of the texts that came to be censored. And then as a result of the censorship, portions of these texts began to circulate as part of literary debates later amongst progressive progressives themselves. So I looked at their literary magazines and their meetings. Um, and so, I mean, I, I'm kind of trying to provide evidence, not just of individual lives and political actors and these accounts, um, censorship that were the progressive writers preserved um, for future literary intellectuals but also kind of thinking of collectively from an archive together with legal documents and state records from which various counter histories of colonial modernity might be recognized. Hmm. Uh, I'm sure listeners are eager as I am to, to hear about some of the stuff you're working on now. Can you tell us uh, things we might be able to get our hands on in the future? Yes, of course. And you know, writing this book, as I spent a lot of time thinking, especially with the last chapter on feminist articulations in Urdu and this drawing from a much longer and older history, uh, got me thinking about um, the pre-modern and early modern past in South Asia. So I have actually moved four centuries about 450 years actually into the past. And I'm now um, looking at this, um, the region of the Deccan, which is in South India. There's also regional histories also get short shrift in, in South Asia um, overall. There tends to be a North centric kind of prejudice, I suppose, in the writing of the histories of South Asia. So I'm looking at well, what was, what was it like in pre-colonial India? And in particular, I'm looking at the life of uh, India's Muslim warrior queen, Chand Bibi, who emerged in the 16th century. She lived between 1550 and 1600. I believe she was a contemporary of Queen Elizabeth, about whom we hear quite a lot about. <laughs> But there are many, many powerful women who came to the fore in the 16th century and who existed in pre-colonial um, and pre-modern pasts. And I'm looking at, she is known particularly, John Beebe, for actually fighting against and defeating at multiple points the most powerful emperor of her time and age, emperor, the Mughal emperor, Akbar. 
And the book is not just a biography, but it's actually asking questions of how we write history um, and how we kind of retrieve these pasts, in, especially since uh, the, there's, I found multiple narratives of how she died. And uh, that sort of tells us, I mean, about how people are interpreting her and no one's really looked at her. And, and, and yet, you know, she's, she, 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 she's so like looking at her life and world is so rich. We see in India before colonialism, we see in India or South Asia rather before, um, or rather from the perspective of the Deccan from the South, because uh, when it comes to uh, South Asian Islam and the history of South Asian Islam in South Asia and the subcontinent, there again, tends to be a much stronger focus on Mughal, on the Mughal past. But there in the Deccan, you had influences coming right from Iran, you know, directly. There were many uh, Persian scholars who left the Safavid empire and came and lived in South India. And so I'm looking at that. I'm looking at this very pluralist, um, you know, ethnically, religiously pluralist world in which the lines were not drawn like Hindu and Muslim, as are seen in the contemporary and modern South Asian you know, uh, national histories like to tell that story now, but that those were not the lines uh, around which people were struggling and fighting and forming their identities. And this is also a story about a powerful woman and how she became a sovereign. She's the only queen in India to have ruled multiple kingdoms. Um, she was a, a widow. She didn't have children of her own, which for the time and place is quite remarkable because the uh, through line for queens um, is usually their children. So there's just like a lot happening with this figure. And I think it's an important history to um, retrieve and recuperate, especially since so much has been written about the women from you know, Hindu and upper caste uh, backgrounds that we um, see other sort of figures from the past typically get elided. Yeah, it sounds like a fascinating project with a lot, lot to be done. So good luck. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and thanks again for making the time to talk about this great book. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. That was my conversation with Sara Wahid about hidden histories of Pakistan, censorship, literature, and secular nationalism in late colonial India, published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic studies. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.